gates being finished or gates being built are now finished. And so now um, <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 8 picks up here. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He had read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. Uh, and beside him stood uh, Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on the right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadadon, Zechariah, and Meshalim on his left hand. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites, explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Verse 9, then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Verse 13. Then on the second day, the heads of fathers, households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So that they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, in the square at the water gate, in the square of the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. He read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Church family, thankful for the word of God this evening. Brother Brock, come and preach the word to us. Good evening, church. How are we doing tonight? Good, good. Uh, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8 tonight. Uh, that's what we'll be studying. Um, it's good to be back in church. I've, I've been gone for a couple of weeks, and, and I've, I've really hated it. Um, 
this past Wednesday and Sunday, we were out of town um, you know, on, on our vacation. And then uh, the week before, I was at home with the, with, uh, the girls because they were sick. So it's been two weeks since I've been here, and, and I miss being at church. Um, and and that, that really encourages me that I miss being at church with you guys, miss worshiping with my, with my family. Um, I miss every one of you guys. And, and while, while we were in Kentucky this week, me and Melly just kept talking about how, man, I, I wish we were there today on, on Sunday. And when, when Wednesday came around, man, I wish we were there tonight. Um, and, that, and that's, that's a real blessing to know that I have a church like you guys to, to miss and to, to love worshiping with. Um, so just, just thank you for being my church. I, I really appreciate that. Um, before we get into Nehemiah chapter 8, I want to go ahead and pray uh, so that we can go ahead and start on the right foot. Father, I thank you for this day. Um, God, I thank you for your word and what it means to us. Um, Lord, thank you for the, the word that you've written here in Nehemiah chapter 8. Um, it's a little wordy. But, but God, we, we know that there are so many rich truths in it. Um, Lord, we're going to see how your word shapes our life from the sermon tonight. Um, God, I pray that you would just, just speak to each, more, each one of us. Um, help us to see the rich truths that you have for us in this chapter. And God, I pray that you would just, um, just change our lives to be made more like Christ in all that we do. Lord, I pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 8. Um, I'm actually really, really excited about preaching this, this chapter tonight. Um, probably, I'm probably the most excited about this sermon over any other sermon that I've preached so far. Um, and the reason why is because I, I've loved this chapter as probably one of my favorite chapters in Scripture. All the way going back to, I think it was 2004. Um, in 2004, I went to my very first youth camp uh, as, a, as a fresh middle schooler. And... Um, and when we went to that youth camp, the, the camp study was in Nehemiah. So we started from the beginning and went to the end. We did an expositional study of, of the entire book. Now, the exposition that we got was not necessarily accurate. Um, it was the, the theme was about how we need to make our youth group strong like Nehemiah's wall. Not exactly sure that's what had, uh, Nehemiah and Ezra had in mind when they, when they wrote this book. But, you know, it's, it still stemmed a... A, a love for this this uh, this chapter here in my life, and, and the reason why I, I love this chapter so much is because even though I wasn't saved at that time, I knew something was special about Nehemiah chapter eight. Even even as a non-believer at that time, I knew something was special here. And, and over the years, as I've grown in my understanding of the word, and as I've studied this chapter a few times. I've grown in my appreciation for it, and I've grown in my understanding of what it means, and I've grown in my love for it. Um, and, and the reason why I, I love Nehemiah chapter 8 is because, in my opinion, it is one of the clearest examples that we have of what it looks like in the Christian life to read the Word of God and then how it shapes our life. This is one of the clearest pictures of that that we get in the entire Word of God. Uh, and we, we see what the Christian life should look like when we read the Word of God, when we hear it. How does it affect our life? That's what we get from this chapter. Um, there's a lot of confusion in the church today about the role of Scripture. Uh, it's a sad reality, but it's a reality nonetheless. Unfortunately, false doctrine and weak leadership have crept into the church and have caused this confusion in the church. Some people believe that the Bible is a good, uh, good source of moral standards, um, that are to be followed. Some think that it's simply a historical account of the church. Um, still others believe that it's an outdated rule book uh, subject to relevant interpretation. 
And, and we see that in our postmodern era. And some people even believe that the Bible is just a book of stories and fables uh, that teaches how to be good people. Obviously, we know all of these views are not correct. Um, it's sad. It's truly sad that these are the views of Scripture, even within the church. These are the views of Scripture in some cases. But before you scoff at the, the thought of these views, before you, you judge quickly, think about your own life. Think about how you view Scripture. What, what does Scripture mean to you? And if you think about it, you may not be too far off from one of these descriptions. It might surprise you. So I would encourage you as we, as we go through tonight's sermon and we go through chapter 8 of Nehemiah here, I want you to think about what Scripture means to you. And I want you to dwell on that. What's beautiful about Nehemiah chapter 8 to me is that it clearly lays out exactly what the role of Scripture should be in our lives. We see that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to work in and through the lives of His people. This is the overarching theme of this chapter. The author wants us to see that the Holy Spirit is actively using the Scriptures to work in the lives of His people for the glory of God. Chapter 8 is a bit of a transition in the book of Nehemiah, and we see that here. Um, for the first part of this book, we've seen where they've built the wall, and there's been this, this um, dependence on, on physical protection. Well, now that's done, what's the immediate need? It's the spiritual nourishment. And, and that's the transition here. Um, as, as we get into chapter 8, now they're not so much concerned about the wall. Now they're concerned about the spiritual nourishment of the people in Jerusalem. So Ezra, Nehemiah, and the rest of the leaders turn to the scriptures for the spiritual nourishment. Now, how exactly does the Spirit use the Word of God to glorify the Godhead? That's the question we must ask. And, and from this chapter, we see that the Spirit will engage every aspect of the human being when we come to the scriptures. First, He will provoke the mind to understanding of and a hunger for the scriptures. Second, he will, provoke a, uh, he will provoke the heart to an emotional response. And third, he will provoke the will to obedience. So let's first take a look at how the Holy Spirit provokes our minds when we read the scriptures. A while back, I had a boss that I, I worked for um, at Gander Mountain, and um, I really enjoyed working for him. His name was Sam. He was a great guy. Um, me and him got along really well. We both had similar interests in fishing and hunting. And, um, and, and we built up this relationship over time. He knew that I was a Christian, um, and, and he respected my faith, but he didn't really seem to have any use for it and didn't want any part of it. Um, but we, we still had this mutual respect for one another. Well, one day when I was at work, Sam called me into the office over the radio and says, we need to talk. And I'm thinking, oh, no, what did I do? What, what have I done wrong? I'm, I'm going back over the week. Um, I think I did that right. I, I, think, I think I did. But I'm, I'm wondering, what am I getting fired for? Well, I walk into the office, Sam closes the door, and immediately tears start welling up in his eyes. And I, I know something's serious, something's wrong. Because Sam never showed emotion to me. He was always a very strict boss. But Sam, through the tears in his eyes, looked at me and, and told me that he had been having some physical problems lately. And that the doctor said that they thought it was the early onset of ALS. And he was terrified. It scared him. Um, more, more so than I'd ever seen Sam scared in my life. Um, so Sam was wanting to ask me about my faith in Jesus. 
he asked me who Jesus was to me and why my faith was different. So I got the opportunity to share the gospel with him, and, and, and I told him about who Jesus was to me, and I encouraged him with some scripture. Well, I, I told him, you know, this is, this is what the, the will of God is for all to be saved. And, and I, I, I laid out the gospel for him, encouraged him on, on what to do, and he decided he wanted to read the entire Bible cover to cover in an effort to know God. And um, so over the next few months, Sam proceeded to read the entire Bible from cover to cover. And I thought, surely, surely, as Sam reads this entire Bible, which a lot of people in the church haven't read the entire Bible, surely as Sam reads this entire Bible from cover to cover, he's going to see the, the account of creation, the fall of man, the giving of the law, and the redemption of Jesus Christ. And he's going to say, aha, Jesus, I need Jesus. Well, guess what? It didn't happen. Sam read the Bible from cover to cover, and at the end, he knew the story of God, but at the same time, he didn't know the story of God. He had a quest for, for knowledge of God, but he didn't have a quest for knowledge of our God the way that God intends our knowledge of him to be. And, and it was sad. But that was the moment that made me realize um, that understanding of the word and a desire for it um, can only come from the Holy Spirit. That, that's when I realized that. We've been talking about this over the past few months in, in uh, Wednesday night services. If you've been here, we've been talking about how um, we gain understanding of the scriptures through the aid of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and that was made known to me at that time. And we see the Holy Spirit do this here in chapter 8, of chapter 8 of, of Nehemiah with the people of Jerusalem. As we pick up at the end of, of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, it's the first day of the seventh month. And if we've learned anything so far in the book of Nehemiah, we've learned that dates are important. Don't skip over them. Um, this is actually the equivalent of New Year's Day on the Jewish calendar, believe it or not. Even though it's the seventh month, it's the New Year's Day in, in Jewish custom. Um, in Jewish tradition, this is a time of celebration, feasting, and religious observation, which is why we see the Feast of Booze. So the people start off the new year by coming together as one congregation to read the law. Uh, verse 2 says that everyone who could listen with understanding was present. Now there's a couple, a couple different views of what this means, um, but I believe that it means um, that Ezra is referring to men, women, and children um, that were old enough to understand what was being taught from the scriptures. Basically a lot like what one of our Sunday morning services would look like. People that were able to understand the scriptures were present for this. Um, Ezra even stood up on a wooden platform to preach the word, much like a pastor in a modern day church stands behind the pulpit. So there's a lot of similarities here. There seems to be a lot of similarity between their worship service and ours. But how about this part? Look at what, what verse 3 says. It says, He read from it, being the law, before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. Now, during this time, the beginning of the day was considered to start about 6 o'clock in the morning, and midday would have been about noon. So what the author is saying here is that the people listen to the Word of God preach from 6 o'clock in the morning until noon. That is six hours straight of preaching. It's a long time. And what's more, on top of that, is that verse 3 continues to tell us that the people were attentive for the entire time. For the entire six hours, they were attentive. 
How many of us are that attentive during sermons on Sunday morning? Or how about on, on Sunday night even? Some of you might be nodding off right now. I don't know. I don't get any response, so you might not be attentive right now. <laughs> um, if the pastor takes longer than 40 minutes, we're already checked out because we've got to get to the restaurant before First Baptist lets out. You know, we've we, we got to get there and get there quick. Uh, we start getting antsy about that. Or even worse, we get bored because our attention spans are so short. How often do we get lost in our thoughts as, as uh, the pastors preach from God's word? And, and don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not exempt from this. I'm right here with you. This is November. What's November for, for some of us guys? Hunting season. That's right. I've been, I've been on vacation all week hunting. And for the past few months, as, as hunting season approached and as, as deer fever started kicking in with me, I had to fight off the temptation to, to think about big bucks walking past my tree stand while the sermon is, is being preached. It's a temptation. I have to. And any of you that says otherwise, you're, you're lying. Um, but let me, let me dig a little bit deeper here. Let me dig a little bit deeper. How many of us give attention to the word like this at home when no one's watching? Not even on a Sunday morning when the, when the pastor is preaching a sermon, but how about at home? How much, do you give the, how, how much attention do you give the word at home? When we leave this church building, how often do we open our Bibles and read what God has written for us? And even if we are opening our Bibles on a daily basis, even if you are opening it up every single day, how much attention do we really give it? Are we reading the scriptures because we desire God's precepts more than precious jewels? Or are we reading them out of a sense of Christian duty? Something to ask yourself. I'd wager that very few of us are reading the scriptures with the proper attention that it deserves. But here's the good news. It may be unnatural and difficult for us to remain attentive to the scriptures, but the Holy Spirit is faithful to help us if we ask him. We recently studied John chapter 14, verses three, uh, 13 through 14, where it says, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus said that if we ask anything in his name, he would grant it to us. If we come to him asking for attentiveness to the scriptures so that we can glorify the Father, I seriously doubt that he's going to not grant that request. I seriously doubt it. But notice something else about their encounter with God's word here in, in Nehemiah chapter 8. Not only were the people attentive to the word, but they had a hunger for an understanding of it. They had a hunger for an understanding of it. Look at how the people of God respond to, to the word in verse 5 when Ezra opens it up and begins to teach. The whole assembly, which would have been thousands of people, stood up and showed respect for the word for the entire six hours that it was taught. If you ever wonder why we stand for corporate reading of the scriptures, or if you think that it's, it's silly that we do that, this is why. This is why we do it. When you hold the word in high esteem, you tend to show it the utmost respect. And so because of this, Pastor Cody has told me that from now on, we're going to stand for all of our sermons, and we're going to stand for the entire hour. Right, Pastor Cody? Yeah, amen. Just kidding, by the way. Don't stand up. <laughs> but as Ezra taught from the law, the, the people responded in verse 6 by saying, amen, amen. Do you know what the word amen means? It means, so be it. That's what the word amen means. What the people are doing here is they're affirming the word that is being preached. In their desire for the word, they are affirming that they stand behind what is being said wholeheartedly. 
Now, we're not necessarily one of the more amening churches that I've been to, um, but we do say amen when the word is being preached sometimes because we are affirming that we agree with the word and we are agreeing with what it says. But the thing that stands out the most to me is the fact that the people have such a desire for the word that they are willing to stand for six hours a day and listen to it not just one day, but for an entire week. Every day, six hours for a week straight. This, this is what blew my mind when, when Pastor Cody and I went to the Ivory Coast this summer. Um, when, when I came back, when you guys asked me what stood out to me the most, this was it. That every day... They were so attentive for such a long period of time, and it was for an entire week that they were like this. It, it wasn't like they were just there for a couple hours and they left and went home. It was an entire work day, basically, jam-packed full of teaching and preaching, and they were attentive for the entire week. That blew my mind. Our translator was speaking so much that he eventually had to take breaks and had to let someone else take a turn. He was getting, he was getting raspy in his voice, and he couldn't talk anymore. Um, and, I, and I actually believe that's what the 13 people mentioned in verse 4 here. I think that's what they're for. Um, they're on the stage with Ezra basically as backups in case he needs someone to, to come up and, and uh, read for him so he can take a breather. I believe that's what they're there for. But they had a continual reading of the scriptures because the people craved it. Now here's the deal. The Hebrew language had changed since the giving of the law. Uh, for example, ha have you ever tried to read Old English? And I'm not talking about like 1700s or 1800s English. I'm talking about John Wycliffe's day in the 1400s. The English of John Wycliffe's day in the 1400s is vastly different from our English language today. You probably wouldn't even recognize what it's saying unless you had a transcription right next to it. You, you wouldn't be able to read it. You wouldn't know what it was saying. Um, and that's, that's only 600 years. Well, guess what? The time between the writings of Moses and the law to the, this point in Nehemiah chapter 8 is about a thousand years. So it's a really long time. And during that time, the, the Hebrew language had changed. And so the people couldn't understand it without assistance. So that's what the additional 13 men and the Levites of verse 7 are for. They were there to give understanding to the people. We see that the Holy Spirit worked through the men listed to bring understanding to the word to those that desired it. The Lord has not changed in this regard either. The Holy Spirit still enlightens the heart of his people through the scriptures taught by men. We have God's written words before us, and, and sometimes it's easy to grasp. Um, sometimes we grasp what it means fairly easily. But other times, the Holy Spirit will use agents like pastors in a sermon, um, a book, or a class to enlighten us with some of the more difficult things that we find in scripture. But one thing remains true. He is faithful to reveal understanding of the word to those who desire it for the glory of God. Amen? Amen? So now that we've seen how the Holy Spirit provokes the mind to understanding, but let's see next how he provokes the heart to an emotional response to the word. Now, let me just begin this point by making a quick disclaimer. Uh, emotional response to the word of God is a topic that kind of comes with some baggage, and, and we know this. Um, over the years, we've seen brothers and sisters in Christ who have taken a rather charismatic approach to their faith, and it's, it's caused some rifts and division within the church, um, and, and you know, it's caused a little, little hiccups here and there. 
In current times, we're, we're facing this epidemic of the word of faith movement. Um, goodness, it's awful. But it, it leads people to a purely emotional response to Scripture without any kind of biblical theology to back up their faith. That's what we're combating right now. So stuff like this has honestly left us a little jaded to the idea of emotions in the church. As Southern Baptists, we're naturally a little bit more inclined to leave emotion at the door because of the skepticism that we have. And, and let me be the first to say that I, I struggle with this. This is something that I struggle with because I've been raised in the Southern Baptist culture. So my spiritual emotions radar goes up when people start having some emotional responses that I don't normally find natural to myself. But is this the proper way to approach the scriptures? Is it okay for us to completely detach ourselves from any emotional response to the word? Or is it possible that we've let that pendulum swing too far to the other side as, a, as an overreaction to the charismatic and, and um, word of faith movements that we've seen? I would say that there's a middle ground that we must find. There, there has to be a middle ground. And I say that because we clearly see the Israelites emotionally respond to the law here in, in Nehemiah chapter 8. Um, and and there's, there's three aspects we're going to talk about with this emotion. And the first is that we see they're weeping. We see they're weeping. Ezra has been reading from the book of the law, and the people begin to mourn and weep. Now remember the context. They've just finished observing the Day of Atonement, where the sin of the nation is forgiven and cleansed. The cleansing is promptly followed by the Feast of Booths, which is what they're doing right now. And, and that's where they're supposed to, it's supposed to be a celebration of what God has done for the people. So what in the world is going on here? Why are the people so upset? It's because the people are now convicted of their sin when they hear the law, the law of God preached. Now, let me, let me put this into a little bit of perspective for you, okay? Let's say you have an interview coming up for a job, okay? So this interview is coming. You wake up the morning of... You go into the bathroom to get ready, and you realize that you don't have a mirror. But you decide you're going to go ahead and get ready anyway with your, your, your normal routine. So guys, you get your razor out, you shave your neck, um, you comb your hair, uh, you, you make sure that you're all clean, you put on a nice dress shirt with a tie, you're looking snazzy. Ladies, you, uh, you go into the bathroom, and you curl your hair, you make it look real nice, you put on your foundation and your lipstick and all that good stuff, and... Whatever else y'all do that takes two hours to get ready, I don't, I don't know. Um, but whatever, whatever y'all do. So you get ready, you go to the interview. And when you get to the interview, you're feeling confident. But then you sit down with the interviewer, and he's giving you some funny looks. And you're not really sure why. But throughout the entire interview, you feel like something is not right. You feel like, man, this guy doesn't like me. But I'm giving the right answers, and I've got a really nice appearance about me. You know, I'm feeling confident. So what, what's going on? And you quickly realize that this, this is a bust. The interview is not going well. You're not getting the job. So you get done with the interview, and you just want to go home and wallow in self-pity. But first, you need to go to the restroom. So you walk through the restroom door, and the whole wall over the sink is a mirror. And what do you see? You see that you look like an absolute wreck. Guys, you've got razor burn like nobody's business. You look like you got stung by a bunch of fire ants. You got little nicks all over your neck that's got little blood stains on your white collar. You, you got a dirt smudge on your forehead. You got an alfalfa cow lick going on. Yeah, you look terrible. Ladies, the Florida humi humidity has done a number on those curls. 
your curls now look like basset hound ears. They're flopping all around. You got lipstick smeared on the corner of your mouth. You got foundation on the, on the, uh, the sleeve of your dress. You just look awful. You look egregious. And so, so what do you do? Guys, you feel like the red meat is catching up with you and you're having a heart attack. Ladies, you run into the stall and you cry your eyes out. That mirror most definitely caused an emotional response. It triggered an emotional response. Well, guess what? That's, that's kind of like what the Word of God is to us. The Word of God is like a mirror to us. What it does is it helps us to see our sin compared to the perfect nature of God. And, and it shows us how egregious we look before God's perfect and holy character. And it shows us where, where, we're, where we're in sin. So this is why the Jews are weeping. Even though they've already participated in the Day of Atonement, it isn't until the Word of God is preached to them that they are heavily convicted of their sin. That's, that's what it took. So now here's the crazy thing. If, I want you to realize that this morning is actually a, an act of grace given by the Holy Spirit. The mourning that they're experiencing is actually a graciousness from God. If the Holy Spirit did not graciously lead us to an understanding of the Word as we already discussed, then we would not be able to emotionally respond to it when we read it. So it's grace that we're able to mourn. Romans 3.20 says, For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The Holy Spirit uses the understanding of the Word to convict us of our sin. But the people realize that the knowledge of their sin is not enough. Knowledge of your sin is not good enough. Um, If we all all know, if all we know is that we fall short of God's standard, then that should leave us rather discouraged. But the Jews understood the law properly here. They, They understood that it pointed them forward rather than back. Galatians 3.24 says this, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. This is exactly why Nehemiah tells the people to celebrate um, instead of mourn. In verse 10 he tells them this, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And, And that leads us to the second aspect of the emotional response, which is celebration. How they respond in verse 12 says, all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Let me ask you this. When's the last time that you celebrated over what God has revealed to you from the Word of God? When's the last time that you celebrated something that God has revealed to you from His Word? And I don't mean uh, the last time that you simply felt good about a sermon. The, the last time that you, you walked out of church and you got in the car with your spouse and you said, that was a good sermon. I'm not even talking about that. I'm not talking about the last time you celebrated a holiday at church. When's the last time you really, really celebrated what the Holy Spirit revealed to you through the Word of God? When's the, time, the last time that you lifted up your head, your eyes, and your hands to God in praise for giving you understanding of His Word? convicting you of sin in your life, and then leading you to repentance and guiding you toward holiness. When's the last time you celebrated like that? Or better yet, have you ever celebrated like this? Have you ever? And notice that this isn't just an individual 
celebration. This is a corporate festival of the people of God. The people didn't withdraw within themselves and contemplate the goodness of God alone. The people came together and celebrated as one church. This was a corporate fellowship that encompassed everyone from all walks of life. There were men, women, and children. There were priests and laymen. There were the rich and the poor. They all celebrated the grace and goodness of God as one people. Likewise, we should celebrate the goodness of the word together. First Baptist Church of Great Gables should live in a constant state of celebration with one another as we walk through life together and see how this Holy Spirit uses the powerful word of God to mold us into an image that's more like Christ. That's how we should walk together as a family. That's why I mentioned that when I first came up. We're a family. We should celebrate together in God's word. But then we're going to see the third aspect of this emotional response, which is a supernatural progression. We see a progression of emotion from the people. The Holy Spirit led them from an emotional response of sorrow to an emotional response of celebration. And this is very important for us to understand. Very, very important. Because this is the natural progression that we should see in our lives. When we are convicted of sin, we mourn. But then our faith in the redemption of Christ compels us to celebrate. Amen? Amen. If this is not the progression of emotion, then something is wrong in our life. There's something wrong if that's not the progression. And what exactly do I mean by that? Um, Warren Wearsby puts it this way. He says, It is as wrong to mourn when God has forgiven us as it is to rejoice when sin has conquered us. You see, if we jump straight into celebration without first mourning over our sin, then we have not truly come to grips with our sin at all. But on the other hand, if we wallow in self-pity over our sin after repenting, then we're in sin again. We're essentially telling Christ that His shed blood is not enough to redeem us from our sin. And it's a slap in the face to Christ. It, It really is. So let us not focus on the sin, but instead let us focus on the grace of Christ that has already conquered that sin. Amen? Okay. So we've seen how we've come to the Scriptures. Uh, So we've seen how when we come to the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit will provoke the mind with understanding and provoke the heart with an emotional response. But now we will see how He also provokes the will of men to obedience. The people of God have just experienced the biggest revival that any of them have ever seen. The people as a whole have been convicted by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the Word of God. Now, it is their responsibility to act according to what they've been convicted of, right? But before we go any further, we need to understand exactly what they had been convicted of. In hearing the law preached, the people realized exactly how far they had fallen short and giving God their heart's full attention. They saw that they only half-heartedly followed him, and, and that was the sin that they were guilty of, only halfway following him. Having that knowledge, verses 13 through 18, seem to make a little bit more sense to us than it does at first glance. Ezra reads from the law, and the people hear how they were supposed to live in booze during the feast of the seventh month. They quickly run out outside of the gates, into the wilderness, and they begin to cut down branches to build these booths with. 
The confusing part is that verse 17 suggests that they had not celebrated the Feast of Booze since the time of Joshua, son of Nun. We know that this isn't true because 2 Chronicles 8.13 tells us that the people observed the holiday in King Solomon's time. And then even um, a few years prior to this event, we see the returning Babylonian exiles uh, observe the feast in Ezra chapter 3 in a different book. So what does it mean when verse 17 says the entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booze and lived in them? The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. Well, it's a continuation of the prior, uh, of the, the prior thought of their conviction. They had been convicted of half-heartedly following God, and here they're convicted of only halfway following His command. The Feast of Booze was a commanded celebration to remind the people of God's provision. That's what it was intended for. Everyone was supposed to cut down branches, build these booze to stay in, and then dwell in them for an entire week. The problem is the people had become lazy. They had become lazy and had only halfway observed the feast. They would follow the, the commandment of living in the booze as, uh, to a certain extent as long as it was convenient for them. I mean, of course, who needs to build a booth if you already live in Jerusalem and you have a perfectly good house to stay in? No sense in that, right? So the people have come to this realization of, the, of their lack of zeal for following God's command. They have been following it, but only halfway. They, they realize their lack of zeal for God's command. And they immediately run out to the wilderness, they cut down branches, and they build these booths that God commanded them to build. And it wasn't just those that didn't have a place to stay. It was the whole assembly. The whole assembly obeyed God's command and wholeheartedly. There were so many booths that they filled every roof, courtyard, and open space in Jerusalem. They even had to stay in the courts of the temple because there were so many people staying in these booths that they built. That's a lot. It's a lot of people. And all of this dedication to God's word was possible because of the power of the Holy Spirit. It was not the power of the will of man to obey, because we know that if it's up to us, we're not going to obey God's commands. It was not the power of the will of man to obey. It was the power of the Holy Spirit to provoke the will of man to obedience. That's why they obeyed, because the Holy Spirit provoked them to obedience. Only through the power of the Holy Spirit do we have the ability to glorify God with our obedience. Any kind of works that we can produce outside of the Holy Spirit are trash. It's only through the grace of the Holy Spirit that we are able to obey God in a way that glorifies Him. But this obedience has to come first through the understanding of the Word. And then from the emotional response to the Word that we have. So the practical application that we can take from this single chapter of Nehemiah is absolutely astounding. Even from a feast that we don't even celebrate, we can see how powerful God's word is. It truly is a miracle anytime a human heart is convicted of sin and brought closer to fellowship with God. I want you to think on that for a minute. It truly is a miracle anytime that a broken, sinful, dark, self-centered, blasphemous, twisted heart of a human being is convicted of sin and brought closer to God. That's truly a miracle. 
But friends, how much more so is it a miracle when the hearts of an entire nation is convicted of sin and brought low before God? That's astounding. But get this. This is the power of the Holy Spirit through God's Word. If you doubt the power of the, Holy, uh, of the Word of God, this is proof right here. This is proof of the power of the Holy Spirit through God's Word. Now remember, the Holy Spirit works through God's Word by provoking the mind to understanding, provoking the heart to an emotional response, and then provoking the will to obedience. My question for you is this. Do you think that the Holy Spirit and His Word is this powerful? Do you really? How much time have you spent reading your Bible this week? How much time have you spent deeply studying the Word of God and then praying over it for understanding, asking the Spirit to enlighten your heart? How much time have you spent weeping over the sin that the Scriptures have revealed to you in your life? How much time have you spent rejoicing over the forgiveness of those sins that you were convicted of? And how well have you been obedient to the convictions that the Word of God revealed to you? Guys, I'm not saying this from a perspective of perfection, because God knows I am not perfect in this area. I struggle mightily. I admit that if I, if I was not teaching Sunday school weekly or biweekly, and if I wasn't on the preaching rotation, I would struggle more than I do now to stay in God's Word faithfully. It's hard. But guys, like I talked about, if we ask the Holy Spirit to help us with this, He's not going to refuse us. If you truly desire the Word of God to shape your life and you ask the Spirit for, for help with this, He's going to be faithful to grant it to you. I promise. And, and why is this so important? Why, why is understanding God's Word so important? If you weren't here this morning, Pastor Cody gave us this, this story about how pudgy 13-year-old Cody got shot up with paintballs because he didn't take a paintball gun to a, a birthday party. Well... That's exactly why we need the Bible. Because if we go out into this world thinking that we're okay without our, our, our sword of God, we're going to get destroyed. It's only by the word of God that we're able to fight the devil. That's the only way. And this is exactly how we experience the power of the Holy Spirit through his word, is by spending time in it. Verse 18 concludes by saying this. Ezra read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Celebrate the word by reading it. And let it guide you to obedience. But give it reverence through solemn prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to change you for the glory of God through the application of his word. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you again for this day. I thank you for what your word means to us. Lord, we can see that your word is all-powerful. And Lord, it has the power to convict us of sin and then to make us more like Christ. And God, that's what we need. We need the Holy Spirit to work in us as we read our, our Bibles and as we read your Scripture. God, I pray that you would be faithful to do that in us. 
And Lord, help us to be faithful to you to actually spend the time that we need to in the scriptures. Lord, I pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen.